In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. All right, we are continuing our series through the book of Ezra. Today is Ezra chapter 2. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now, typically, I would say at this point, I'm going to read our text in its entirety. I'm going to have to leave out that that little prepositional phrase, in its entirety. Um, Here's the deal. I'm just going to be blatantly truthful. Uh, You need to read this entire chapter because all Scripture is God-breathed. But you can read it on your own and be embarrassed by yourself as you mispronounce dozens of words. Instead of me being publicly embarrassed in front of you mispronouncing those words, I would like for you to mispronounce all these names yourself, okay? So it matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, uh, but this is a, a large text. It's, it's 70 verses, in fact, and so just the amount of verses, period, is uh, very large, and uh, the difficulty of reading all of these Hebrew names um, is immensely challenging. I've already got enough names that I'm going to read just in the verses that I've selected. Uh, but all that being said, we are doing the entirety of Ezra chapter 2. Uh, but there is a large genealogy, a list of all these different Israelites uh, who came up with the uh, Hebrew leaders from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild uh, the temple and the cities, to rebuild uh, the, the land of Israel. And so all of their followers, all of these uh, Jewish families, I'm going to be skipping that section of the genealogy. Um, it matters. Read it on your own. Uh, I'm being completely honest. I cannot pronounce the names. And I know, you know, guys will say, well, what you do is you say it fast and you say it confidently. And that does work um, to a certain extent, um, but there will be some who will catch you, and, uh, and I will get tons of emails. I'll get them anyway. So um, all that being said, I'm going to focus on verse 1 and 2, and then we'll pick back up. This is directly after the genealogy with verses 59 through 70. We will get the main point of the text. Uh, by God's grace, I promise you we'll get the main point of the text. So without further ado, here we go. Starting in verse 1 and then two, and then moving forward, finishing out the chapter, verses 59 through 70, God's word says this. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realeah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehem, and Baana. The following were those who came up from Tamela, Telharsha, Sherab, Adon, and Emer. Though they could not prove their father's house or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda. 652. Also the sons of the priest, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hekaz, the sons of Barzillia, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillia, the Gileadite, who was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. 
According to the, their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated and let's begin. The first thing that I want to note from the text is this. Um, this is very clearly not fantasy. This is not fiction. When you read fantasy or fiction, a narrative that's a story that's not actually uh, history, it's not actually real, um, when you read fantasy or just narrative in antiquity, old writers, uh, one of the things that you'll notice is a lack of detail. If you're reading just a story that's not actually a historical account, it's not something that really happened, it's not real, uh, then they don't bother to tell you how many minas of silver there were. They, they don't bother to say um, there were 7,337, uh, you know, mules, you know, or there were th this many uh, camels. Uh, th that's just not the way it works. If you read something like Beowulf, for instance, it's, uh, it's very old and it's also very, well, it's, it's just very uh, vague. It's, it, it's, there's a focus on, you know, they're having a feast. Uh, but it doesn't tell you what the goblets look like in the feast with exact detail and which kinds of jewels are used and when these goblets were captured from another kingdom and the date and the names and the province. And the, it's just, you don't need all that to get into the story. The story is about slaying a monster, right? That's, that's the focus. And that's the way fantasy has been viewed um, for centuries and centuries and centuries until relatively recently. So part of the reason it seems foreign to us is because as moderns, um, where entertainment has, there's always been a place for entertainment in every society and culture, but, but we are uh, in a culture um, that entertainment dominates. It's a dominant feature of our culture. And, and so because of that, when we think of fantasy or fiction, uh, it is given to extreme detail. So you, you, know, you watch a true crime detective show, that's, it's not a historical account. It's, it's fiction. It's made up, uh, but it's down to the precise details of, you know, like they're, they're consulting as they're even, you know, on the set shooting the film. Uh, the, the director and producers and different guys are actually consulting actual detectives and consulting, you know, people who work in DNA swabbing labs and this and that to get the exact details because they want it to be as real, as believable as possible. And so my whole point, all, all I'm saying is that is a pretty recent phenomenon. Uh, the idea of fiction that is detailed, right? Detailed fiction is a relatively modern phenomenon. Um, but in antiquity and in, in, in times past, uh, if you have fiction, it tends to be vague. The thing that's going to be emphasized and detailed is the story itself, the monster, the hero, but not necessarily uh, exact places. And this place was precisely 7.6 miles away from this other place, right? You're probably familiar, most of you, but uh, the best guide over decades now, I mean centuries, but especially in recent decades as, as technology has developed, uh, the archaeologists, uh, their best guide as they're looking uh, in the old world, Mesopotamia, uh, trying to discover ancient artifacts, their best guide has been for decades now, the Bible. The Bible has proven to be uh, bar none. I mean, it's not even close. It's not like the Bible, but then a close second is, no, no, no. It's just the Bible. It is by far the most um, accurate uh, textbook because it is real, a, a history book of saying this place is in this location, which is this many miles away from this river, and this person was set up as governor at that time, and, and here's the genealogy of who he came from and who they came. So my point is this. When we're reading the book of Ezra, and really when we're any, anything in Scripture, we are reading uh, reality. We're reading truth. These are not stories. They're not mere narratives. Uh, this is a historical account. And that's one. There, there are other reasons, but that's one of many reasons why genealogies matter. Genealogies matter because um, that's not what a, a novelist, that's not how a novelist writes. That's how a historian writes. So when you read a genealogy, at least one thing that you should 
take into account, if, if nothing else. It's, it's difficult. There's a lot of names, and a lot of them won't mean a lot to you. Um, but as you're reading genealogies in the Bible, one, at least one thought that you should have is this is history. The reason why all these names in succession are listed is because this is history, not fiction. So all that being said, um, there's at least a couple other reasons. So not just to say this is a historical account, namely true, specifically detailed true, uh, but also there's a couple other reasons why this genealogy is listed in Ezra chapter 2 as it pertains to the specific families and households of Israel that was currently in exile as, as a province in uh, Babylon. They were in exile and now they're coming out. There's, there's a couple other reasons why each of these names is listed. Okay, so I've written in your notes, there were two primary reasons. Um, a record was kept containing the families of Israel who came up out of captivity from Babylon. Number one, for their honor. Number one, for their honor. And number two, for their allegiance and fidelity. So for their honor, to honor these families, to list them by name in the scripture that would be recorded and preserved forever, that these names would be eternally honored. But secondly, so that these individuals, their posterity, that is their children and not just their immediate children, one generation, but their children's 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 children, all the way down, their posterity, that they would be able to look back and see their heritage see their lineage, their forefathers, and by seeing their forefathers, it was assumed that in seeing their lineage, their forefathers, that that would um, utterly dictate for them their allegiance. And I want to pause there for a moment because this is something that, again, in a very, it's a very modern phenomenon, uh, this shift that for all of human history until approximately 15 minutes ago, Right? This is a very recent change. For all of human history, when somebody had a record of their ancestors and they could look and see, these are my, my fathers, these are uh, my ancestors, this is my family lineage, my heritage, it just was assumed that that would dictate for them what team they're on. That would outline for them, just, this is where my allegiance lies. This is where my fidelity lies. I mean, even for Moses, like certainly, don't, don't mishear me, certainly God was moving on Moses' heart. Right? So I'm not discounting the divine factor right? with, with everyone, with all Christians. You're not a Christian unless God moves on your heart, unless the Holy Spirit, to be more specific, actually removes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. A miracle has to happen for you even to be born again. But especially with a key figure in what God was doing in, in the redemptive timeline of all of Scripture, someone like Moses, of course there's the divine factor. God stirring up his heart to forsake the treasures of Egypt, as Hebrews talks about, to, to leave the treasures of Egypt and, and not only the, the, uh, the affluence and, and the treasures and the wealth and the comfort and pleasures of Egypt, but to turn his back on the notoriety, the nobility that he had as, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, of a prince of Egypt, his status, all of these things. He was willing to turn his back on that and to associate with Israel, even in the midst of Israel's uh, captivity, their slavery. He would rather have allegiance, pledge his allegiance to slaves than masters because the slaves were his people. Now, how did that shift occur? Well, again, all the way back to what I was saying, the divine factor. God moved in his heart, of course. But also, from a plain reading of the text, namely the, the first few chapters of the book of Exodus, the only thing that's, that's very clearly and practically detailed for us is that Moses discovered that he was a Hebrew. And as far as just looking at the text, that was enough. Moses discovered, I'm a Hebrew. The slaves are actually my people. Okay, I'm on their side. And that was about the extent of the thought process. These are my people. And someone being your people has always mattered for 6,000 years in every place in every time until the West in the last 60 years. 
we are the only exception where heritage does not matter. That is a foreign concept that no biblical writer and no person, whether in the Christian faith or Islam or Judaism or, in, in any, or, or Hinduism or just pa paganism, th th there's no person in any nation, in any time period, who's ever thought that ancestry, heritage, lineage was irrelevant. Except, one exception, Westerners in recent decades since World War I and World War II. So, all that being said, what are the purposes? Again, this is the first point I'm making from the text today. What are the purposes of saying, here's the very first words, verse one, now these were the people. These are the people of the province who came up out of captivity from being exiles in Babylon. They're coming up out of captivity and they're willing to make the journey to their homeland, to Israel, for luxury? No, for really hard work, to rebuild the ruins. It, it'd be easier to stay in Babylon, but they're willing to do this. So why, why are these people, why is Ezra going to give us a, an exhaustive list? Not just the leaders, I read the leaders, right? You've got Zerubbabel, Joshua, uh, Nehemiah, and I'm going to stop there, etc. dot, 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 ellipses, uh, because I don't want to press my, my luck. Luck's not a thing. I don't want to press my providence um, because I've already read these names once, and I'll, be, I'll just show my hand. I did better than I thought I was going to do. I feel like it was fantastic, so you're welcome. And when I finished reading the text, I thought, I kind of, part of me wants to take a bow, but then that's actually probably not the thing to do. Instead, let's say, thus saith the Lord, give God the credit. Uh, that's not a good move to be bowing in the pulpit. So I, I resisted that uh, fleshly temptation. I'm not going to read the names anymore because they're difficult. But the point is this. It's not what we skipped in the genealogy, namely verses 3 through 58. So 50-something verses, what we skipped was... Um, not just the leaders in Israel who led this journey back to Israel for this rebuilding project, but it was all the followers. Even the followers got uh, an honorable mention, right? Everybody gets a mention. Why? One, because we're reading history. It's detailed, not fiction in antiquity, which tended to be vague. Secondly, why did, were they listed? To honor them because what they're doing is not easy. See, we, th we think captivity, uh, let, let me uh, hit this point real quick because this is worth, it's to honor them. And the reason why it's honorable is because they're choosing the more difficult thing. You have to be aware of that. The Israelites who stayed in Babylon are not taking one for the team. They were all released. The ones who chose to stay in Babylon are choosing not the more difficult choice, the easier choice, easier to stay. Because it is not as though, this is after 70 years, it's not as though Babylon, having conquered Israel, that the Israelites were in dungeons and chained to walls. They, they are captives, they are exiles, but you should not read that as prisoners. It, it's different than Israel in Egypt. Even Israel in Egypt, they were exiles there, even in the land of Goshen, right? When they first arrived with Joseph having favor as, as Pharaoh's viceroy, second in command of all of Egypt, they were exiles there. They were underneath Egypt's authority, Pharaoh's authority, but they weren't slaves, not right off the bat. It, it was after Pharaoh died and a new Pharaoh came to power who did not remember Joseph and Israel began to multiply so much so that the new Pharaoh began to see, well, Israel could actually overtake us. Therefore, we've got to do something to, to keep them in subjection so that we can neutralize this potential threat. And then they became slaves. So that's when all of a sudden it, it, they had a plight. That's when their... their uh, status of being exiles in a foreign nation became uncomfortable and painful. Well, Israel and Babylon as exiles, uh, they're, not, um, they're not slaves. I'm not saying Babylon was like super nice about it. I'm not saying that there weren't some difficulties. But remember, uh, even Jeremiah speaking to Israel as God's prophet, speaking for the Lord to Israel in this moment of 70 years of exile, what does Jeremiah say? This is towards the, the beginning of the 70 years. But he says, take off your hat and coat and stay a while. 
That's essentially what God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah to Israel. He says, uh, plant vineyards. So again, don't picture prisoners chained to a wall aren't planting vineyards. Prisoners in a cell aren't giving their daughters and sons in marriage and building houses. Right? So, so you have to keep that in mind. Life for an Israelite at the end of these 70 years of captivity in Babylon was a relatively comfortable life. Going back to Israel, now that was hard. That was the difficult choice because you weren't going back to um, your homeland in its prime. You were going back to your homeland that had been destroyed, utterly destroyed. It's a pile of rubble and you've got tons of work now. You've got to rebuild, you've got to restore, you've got to do all these things. So the list of names, why is it there? Because it's history, not fiction. Because they deserve to be honored because going back was actually the harder choice than staying. But then lastly, for the sake of their posterity, the names of the heads of households, not just the leaders, but the followers who chose to take upon themselves this rebuilding project, going back to Jerusalem, their names are listed so that their posterity, generations down the line, might be able to look to their ancestry, to look to their heritage, their lineage, their history, see these names and say, that's my team. That's what team I'm on. And again, means nothing to you. It means nothing to you. And it means nothing to you because you live in the United States and it's 2024. But that meant something to every person in the world, every time period, every century, until the West 15 minutes ago. Heritage mattered. Heritage told you, it was your jersey, it told you what team you were on. It dictated and outlined for you your allegiance, your fidelity, your unity, where you belonged, who are your people. That's why it's such a big deal. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that nobody ever switched teams, okay? So here's a little disclaimer because people say, well, people change teams. Uh-huh, yes, yeah, some people change teams. Ruth would be an example. She was on team Moabite. Not a great team. The Moabites were not, not a great team. Right? I mean, being on Team Moabite is, you know, I mean, they were just, they were losing constantly. They're, they're, not, they're not going to any championships anytime soon. They're not doing well. But she switches teams. So people in the Old Testament would occasionally switch teams. But, but let me tell you real quick what it looked like to switch teams. Ruth says, and we quote it all the time. We all know the verse. She says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In other words, she doesn't say, hey, Naomi, mother-in-law, I love you. And I've decided to move to the economic zone of Israel to stay in relationship with you and to have financial and vocational opportunity. Because Israel really is just a set of ideas. It's not a place and a people, no. Nobody has thought that ever until 15 minutes ago. Nations are people and places. Always have been, always will be. Acts says that God in his sovereignty sets both the times and borders of nations. Nations are not man's idea to create invisible borders because, because of prejudice. No, nations are a divine institution that God established from the very beginning. This is naturally what would have occurred. In fact, the only instance early on in Scripture that we have man resisting what would naturally conclude in nations is Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and God puts an end to it. God says, no, 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 no. You will disperse over the face of the world as I commanded you. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But what do they say at the Tower of Babel? They say, let us build a tower to heaven that we might do two things. Make a name for ourselves and so that we might not be scattered over the face of the earth. But God comes down and confuses their language, right? I mean, it was the WF, right? It's the original World Economic Forum. 
Right? That's what Babel was. It's like, we're going to have a, a conference here in Switzerland, and we're going to build a tower and talk about how nations aren't a thing. Also, human rights aren't really a thing. Uh, I don't know if you saw that video that just came out. Uh, Soros's right-hand guy saying, nations don't exist. You look from a satellite image. There's no, there's no boundaries and blah, blah, blah. This is an imaginary thing. Oh, also, you know what else is uh, imaginary? Human rights. <sighs> That's scary. That tells you where they want to go. Where do they want to go? No nations. One global order where you'll own nothing and be happy. And why will you be happy? Well, you'll be happy because you'll be plugged into the matrix in a pod and they'll be feeding you images that aren't real that make you think that you're happy. Or if you're not happy, they'll give you enough drugs and chemicals until slowly but surely you can't help but involuntarily smile. It's a dystopian horror. That we're living, we are living in trash world. That is the direction that evil, wicked men want to go. But notice, it's, this is what I'm trying to express. It is not a coincidence. There is a tie. There is a correlation between the George Soros villain, just, just obviously bad guy. He's a bad guy. There is a tie between him saying two things. Are imaginary. Two things we're going to get rid of. Human rights. Now that one's obvious. We're like, yeah, that's a bad guy. He wants to get rid of human rights. But then notice he immediately follows it up with, and nations. Let's get rid of that too. And that's where even the conservative, Christian, American, is like, well, that one I'm okay with getting rid of. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to stand my ground for human rights. I'm a conservative. You know, and, and I'll stand my ground for capitalism. I'll stand my ground for our sacred democracy. But nations, I mean, who needs them? I, I don't see the importance. That is not how the world has thought. And that's not God's original design. And you might say, well, all this is, is the result of sin, though, Joel. Okay, so maybe it is God's design. Maybe Acts does say that God sets nations, their borders, and their times, and that he exalts nations, and he brings them low. Right? God raises empires, and he decimates empires. All these things are done in God's sovereignty. That's God's sovereign will, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was his moral will, especially his initial moral will before sin entered into the picture. I would say, no, it was. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, if sin had never entered into the world, well, then what would they do? If they're not sinning, they are obeying. What did God command? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Eventually, Adam and Eve, if sin had never entered the world, would have had so many descendants, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and so forth, and their children's children would have children, and, and further and further and further, the earth would be filled, but not just one corner of the earth, not the Babel situation. Let's build a tower to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be divided, not be scattered. No, no, no. Adam and Eve, if they had obeyed, they would have by necessity spread out. And in spreading out over centuries, I'm not saying it would happen in, in two or three weeks, but over centuries, what would happen? There would be distinct ethnos, distinct cultures, distinct cultures, distinct customs. They would all be obedient to God if this was an unfallen world, if sin never entered the picture. So they'd all be obedient but even in obedience, there would still be some variance in food, cuisine, dance, music. There would be different cultures. And over centuries and centuries with different cultures, they may even develop different colors. And all that would be good. And my point is this. There would have been nations even if sin never entered the world. And post-sin entering the world, right? So from Genesis 3, that's where sin comes into the picture. Genesis 11, after sin, there's still an attempt to be monolithic. There's an attempt at androgyny. There's an attempt at sameness. And what does God do? God, this is what you need to understand. 
God confusing the languages that causes the people at Babel to divide and spread out over the face of the earth, that is not a judgment for their sin of hubris and pride trying to build a tower to heaven and make a name for themselves. It is actually, it is a punishment. It is a discipline. It is a judgment of sorts, but it's a unique, ironic kind of judgment. We might call it a merciful judgment. It's a judgment on the one hand, and yet simultaneously a mercy, because what does God's confusing of their languages accomplish? Does it derail them from God's plan, or does it actually expedite, work as a catalyst, getting them back into God's plan more quickly? It's that, the latter. God's plan was be fruitful and multiply and spread out. They're saying the spread out part, that part, not going to do it. We are going to rebel against God. Not just building a tower to heaven, not just exalting humanity, right? Not just a, a, a ten, a, attempting to attain to um, uh, tr transient, uh, 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 transcendence and um, uh, eternal life and, and plug, upload our consciences to the cloud. And I mean, that was the equivalent of, you know, they came up with a, a you know, it was a revolutionary technology, right? We have silicon, they had bricks. But for the time, it was revolutionary. We came up with a revolutionary te uh, technology that can allow us to be like God, to make a name for ourselves and to live forever. Really, what'd you come up with? Straw and, and wait for it, mud. Together in the sun over time. The, the most cutting edge technology the world has ever seen. And it, and it was, it was. And we're still doing that. We just have more developed technology, but it's the same ignorance. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be like God and we're going to reach the heavens. We're going to transcend. We're going to live forever. But that's not the only thing that they did at Babel. It wasn't just hubris or pride, being like God, or trying to somehow skip the curse of death that comes by sin. The wages of sin is death. And they're trying to avoid that by ascending to heaven. It was also that we may make a name for ourselves so that we might not be dispersed. Being dispersed was not the judgment. Being dispersed was the original command. God commanded fruitfulness, multiplication, and dispersing, spreading out. And through dispersion, over time comes variety. God's design was not androgyny. God's design was diversity. Diversity among different people in different times and different places. Diversity is not the curse. Diversity was the plan. Pre-sin plan, pre-babble plan, getting them back onto the plan when they try to rebel against the plan with the confusing of languages. It's the plan. But then Westerners come up with a different plan. Very much like Genesis 11 and Babel. Westerners say, you know what? What is a nation? Really? I mean, it's really just an idea. It's really just a set of principles. Or, or I mean, if it is, you know, has boundaries or something, that they're not physical, certainly shouldn't have a wall, but it's really just an economic zone. And that's the same thing that was happening in Genesis 11. And all of a sudden what happened for us is it heritage doesn't matter. Your fathers don't matter. And, and what, what had to be accomplished in order to execute this plan of rebellion? Because it is directly against God's plan. What had to be accomplished? Children had to be taught to hate their heritage. And that's a difficult thing to accomplish, by the way. That is, I mean, that's like, there are different degrees of psyops. That one is top tier. To get a child to hate his father is a difficult task. But postmodernism found a way. By golly, they did it. Kudos. I mean, it's a, that's a tough thing to do, but they did it. Incredibly wicked men. They, they, men, they pulled it off. So then, so then what, what do you come to believe? All your ancestors were bad. The founders of this nation, bad. The crusaders, bad. Constantine, bad. King Alfred, bad. 
Richard the Lionheart, bad. All of them bad. A revisionist history, hating your heritage. That is not how the world thought ever, in any place, in any time. And when people did switch jerseys and change teams, because God does do that, that's real. And that's good. But when it happened, it was not, I'm going to come with you, Naomi, my mother-in-law, into the economic zone of Israel, and I will get a good job and help provide for us. And I appreciate, you know, the Israel principles and ideas. No, 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 no. She came and said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. There was a forsaking of Moab. That's not my people anymore. That doesn't mean I hate them now. I can always love them. I can always care. But I, I, I have forsaken my identity as a Moabitist woman. They are not, in the ultimate sense, my people. Israel is my people. And certainly the Moabite false pagan gods are not my God. Yahweh is my God. What we've done in the West... Just can talk about immigration. That's what I've been talking about. If you haven't picked up, what is he talking about? I'm talking about immigration. What we've done in the West is we have said, you can come, but you don't have to have the triune God as your God. And these people, our people, do not have to be your people. You can come and not assimilate. Not religiously, not culturally, not with language. In fact, we'll stop teaching our children Latin in school and we'll start teaching them Spanish. Why? Because you don't need to learn our language in our country. We'll force our kids to learn your language from another country. Do you understand how foreign that is to all of human history? Do you understand how unique that is? Ruth awesome. Rahab, awesome. People coming to America who love America and want to serve the Christian God because that is our heritage. Don't let them revise the history. They want to serve the Christian God and they want to be on board in fidelity and unity with Christian people and American people. It's not just an economic zone, but it's a place with soil and a place with people and they want to belong to it. Amen. Awesome. That's great. That's great. We want Christians to be a part of this heritage, this history. People who will say, you are my people, your God, my God. But to just go into England, for instance, to switch the analogy here to another country, and to have a prime minister who's, or, or, or France, rather, and to have a prime minister who is not French, who historically has been the enemy of France for centuries. You, you, just, you have to realize that half of the world is laughing right now. They're like, we did it. We did it. And, and you can almost hear like the involuntary question, how? How did we pull it off? There were 700 years of crusades and we, we couldn't take out England. We couldn't take out France. We couldn't take out Spain. Ferdinand, a Spanish king, King Richard the Lionheart, right? Duke Gregory. And the, we could never accomplish it. We could never outpower, ultimately, the Christians. How did we do it? This is how we did it. We told them that they were mean and racist and told them, instead of us battling them, we told them to kill themselves. And they obliged. Isn't it funny? The most powerful empire the world has ever known in the final analysis was defeated simply by telling them that they're mean. And for 60 years, we've been working overtime to defeat ourselves. God forbid we be mean. That is sad. Your ancestors would be ashamed. And I'm not just speaking about nationhood, but in the larger part, here bringing it now to a spiritual New Testament Christian application. 
Your name has been written in history in a book. Just as these Israelites who are willing to take upon themselves the task, not staying with the comfort and familiarity of being exiles in Babylon, but willing to go back to their heritage, their homeland, to rebuild the city of God. You too, if you are in Christ by grace alone through faith, your name has been written down in the annals of history, but not in this book. Your name has been written down in the book, the Lamb's book of life. Why? For your honor. For your honor. By God's grace, you are going to be eternally honored for saying, this is my team. Your God, my God. His people, Christians, my people. And it's one thing. This is kind of bringing it to the, the final point here. It's one thing to pledge allegiance to God and his people in times of prosperity. When God's people are faring well, when God's people are being blessed, when God's people are, are, are in the chief seats, right? When, when they're being when they're receiving notoriety and influence and affluence and praise. You've heard me say this before. I'll, I'll say it once more. John Bunyan, the great late Puritan Baptist who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the most read book outside of the Bible itself, he talks about one character whose name is Mr. Byans. In our more modern English, read that as Mr. Fairweather. That's essentially his name. And he talks to Christian and he says, uh, my wife and I are very re uh, reputable people. Very, of course we're Christians, very reputable Christians. And we love to walk with religion when she is praised in the streets. We love to walk hand in hand with religion when she's wearing her glass slippers and dressed in fine apparel, when the people applaud her. But my name, Mr. Byans, Mr. Fairweather, I've always seen, I'm paraphrasing, I've always seen that, that it doesn't make any sense. Right? It's not that I'm a compromiser. I'm just a man of common sense. It doesn't make any sense to go against the wind. And why travel to the celestial city on a rainy day in the middle of a storm? So when religion is praised, we walk with her. When the sun is shining, we're pilgrims on the way. But in the middle of a storm, we, we stop. We pause. It makes no sense to go against the wind, to go against the grain. That's how many Christians today, or I should say professing Christians, those who pretend to be Christians, think today. When religion is praised, when Christianity is thought well of, when it's dominant, when it actually pays to be a Christian, when your business gets more clients by publicly announcing that you are a follower of Christ, well, then you'll go with Christ. Then you'll walk with religion hand in hand. She's wearing her glass slippers. She's dressed in fine apparel. But what happens when the world becomes hostile towards the Christian faith? And it is. This is Aaron Wren, for those of you who are familiar. He conceptualized this idea of a positive, neutral, and negative world. And he talked about how even in recent times, within some of your lifetimes, uh, we were still in positive world, meaning, meaning that not just Christians themselves, but those even outside of Christianity in the West, and particularly in our country, these United States of America, would look at Christianity mostly positive. They would view it as mostly a positive good. They'd have at least some respect. I mean, you can look at statistics. There was a time where, where um, just in, in terms of vocation and profession, being a pastor was viewed by the common person, whether they were a Christian or not, it was viewed as either the second or third most prestigious vocation. It was, it was like doctor, pastor, and then lawyer. And that's within some of your lifetime. I'm not talking about 200 years ago. I'm talking about recently. But then it shifted from positive world to neutral world where you didn't really stand much to gain by wearing the jersey team Christian, pledging your allegiance to Christ and his people, the church, but you also didn't stand much to lose. And neutral world, here, here's in, in, a, in a nutshell, neutral world, this is what you need to know about it, it was brief. 
Neutral world was not a century. According to lots of guys, Aaron Wren simply being one of them, they would all agree. It was like 15, 20 years, max, done. Positive world, the neutral world, and now, and I would argue since 2014, 2015, and other guys would agree with this, that's what Aaron Wren would say, 2014, 2015, what happened? Think, uh, 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 a burger fell. Uh, so since that time, these last eight years or so, negative world. Meaning that it costs you to publicly announce, I'm a Christian. There's no benefit to be gained. And in one sense, there's a mercy to that, that now it's like, okay, well, it's easier to tell that this person's actually on the team. They're not just like Mr. Buy-ins, right? Mr. Fairweather, just walking with religion because religion happens in this current moment to be praised. No, this person is actually on team Jesus. They're actually one of us, right? Because it's tested through adversity, through tribulation, through suffering, through difficulty. But there's also a lot of detriments that come by not having Christian culture anymore. There are detriments that come with hostility. Like it's harder for a Christian, especially a publicly outspoken Christian, to be employed and feed his kids. Right? People all the time, Nikki Haley would be an example. You know, I'm going to make social media, I'm going to make it a rule if I, I'm elected that uh, everybody has to, you know, be scanned in, you know, and have your picture and your name. No. No. That's not helpful. Number one, that's not our heritage. Back to that point. The, the founding fathers, it was common, not all the time, but many of them wrote under pseudonyms. That is an ancient tradition. And there are reasons for using a pseudonym. Why? Because the truth in that current cultural moment that you might be speaking will get you killed. Because there's a regime that hates truth and power. Right? People all the time, and this is such ignorance. It's such ignorance, but even within the church, people online, you'll see them saying, hey, you think you're courageous speaking the truth, but you won't even show your picture and your name. And people that, you know, the anonymous accounts will respond and say, oh yeah, and you probably also want me to share my date of birth and my social security, right? Of course I'm not going to share my name in a picture. Because you will see to it, even you in the church, you Christian, you will see to it that I can't even feed my kids. It's not safe to share my name. Not just because of leftists and progressives. Not just because of Biden and Fauci. It's not safe because of evangelical pastors. You will cancel me. You'll do an expose. You'll see to it that I am unemployable and that my kids starve. That is negative world. That's where you now live. Trash world, clown world, negative world, whatever you want to call it. You need to know what time it is. The sons of Issachar, they knew the times and what to do. And the sons of Issachar who knew the times, those who were willing to take a stand and push back against negative world, they were worthy of honor. And that's what's going on in the text today. What we see going on, look at verses 61 through 63. Also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of uh, Barzillia, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillia, the uh, Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. What, what is this saying? It's saying all of a sudden, not everybody, some people want to stay where it's comfortable in Babylon. Right? Because right now, it doesn't pay to walk with religion. So some people want to stay in the comfort of Babylon. Others are saying, we'll take the task. It's going to be grueling and difficult, but we'll rebuild the ruins. We'll go on the journey back to our homeland, back to our heritage. But then there were some, another subcategory, that wanted to be about the project, but their names weren't listed in the genealogy. They couldn't go. Or they could go, but you can't be a part of the priesthood anymore. And one of these guys who couldn't be a part of the priesthood, the reason why is because he had transferred his name to his, or at least their ancestor, he had transferred his name to the, the maiden name of his wife. And that's why it wasn't in the genealogy anymore. So he got to go with Israel, but he doesn't get to be a priest. Look at what Matthew Henry says about it. 
There were some that could not prove themselves Israelites, a considerable number who presumed that they were the seed of Jacob, but could not produce their pedigrees. There were others that could not prove themselves priests, and yet were supposed to be of the seed of Aaron. Now we are told how they lost their evidence. This is how. One of their ancestors married a daughter of Barzillia, who was a great man, whom we read of in David's time. He gloried in an alliance, right? So this is an ancestor of a, of, of a certain priest family. Uh, their ancestor, uh, he married the daughter of Barzillia, and he gloried, that is, he, he thought, this is really great, this is a huge advantage, because Barzillia is well off. And, and honorable and has notoriety and great wealth. So he gloried in this alliance to that honorable family. But that family was out of the priesthood. He gloried in an alliance to that honorable family and preferring that before the dignity of his priesthood would have his children called after Barzillia's family rather than his own. And their pedigree preserved in their registers of that house, Barzillia's house, rather than the house of Aaron. And so they lost it. They lost their lineage. In Babylon, there was nothing. Notice this. There was nothing to be gained by the priesthood. And therefore, they cared not about being akin to it. But now that the priests had recovered their rights and had the altar to live upon again, they would gladly be looked upon as priests. But they had sold their birthright for the honor of being gentlemen, and therefore were justly degraded and forbidden to eat of the most holy things. Note, Christ will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him and his service. This guy allegedly is one of the families within the priesthood. He descended from Aaron, a seed of Aaron, him and his house. But they were perfectly content, or his ancestor, I should say, backing up multiple generations all the way to the time of David, were perfectly content to form a family alliance with someone outside of the priesthood. And because that particular family was well-to-do and wealthy and powerful and influential, he allowed his son to take the daughter's name. Right? This is just a brief lesson why feminism destroys. Okay? So this is just one, one example. Took the, took the chick's name, right? Bad move. There you go. Messed up. Took her name. And now, everybody knew for multiple generations. They still knew. Like, of course. But yeah, we know this guy comes from the, the seat of Aaron. And they're part of the priesthood and all that kind of stuff. This is just a technicality. They took his name to honor that family. But as centuries go by, as generations go by, then they're in captivity. Then they're in Babylon. They don't even care to preserve their pedigree. Because being a priest gets you nothing in Babylon. There is no altar for sacrifices and meat that the priests could be preserved on and live on, well, then it's gone. It's lost to history. It, it is no more. When it finally comes time in the favor and province of God to go back to Israel and being a priest means something because the altar is going to be restored and sacrifices will be made again and the priesthood would live off of the tithes and the offerings of the people as they worship Yahweh, well, all of a sudden, guess what? He wants to be a priest again now. But it's too late. Now you don't get to be a priest anymore. Because your ancestry, your heritage, your lineage, your fathers, you despised. You said that they don't really have value. You decided that in a moment of exile, in a moment of living in Babylon, that your actual heritage doesn't matter. So bringing the, all this together, landing the plane, at a spiritual level, your heritage matters. And your lineage at a spiritual level as Christians, your lineage, it is Calvin, it is Luther, it is Augustine, it is Athanasius, it is Richard the Lionheart, it is Duke Gregory, which just for the record, this is all you need to know about Duke Gregory. It is said by multiple sources, including Islamic sources, right? So when, when your opponent is even saying, we got to give props, this guy, like this happened, this guy's crazy. Uh, it is said that Duke Gregory he chopped a man in half with one swing of his sword. Now, that sounds impressive, but that's not even the impressive part. Right? If you hone your skills, you could aspire to one day chop a man in half with one swing of your sword. And I think that's something we can all agree we should aspire to. It's a wonderful thing. Right? So, right, that's something that, but he didn't just chop a guy in half horizontally, but diagonally. That's Duke Gregory. That, and just for the record, he's one of the good guys. That's a champion. That's a heritage. You don't want to forget that. You don't want, to, you don't want that to be lost in antiquity. 
That was a champion. And for the record, it wasn't just about land. It was defending the Christians who were being martyred and slaughtered and starved and enslaved. And that's at least, I'd argue, the first four crusades. That's what it was about. It became a little bit more about the Holy Land later on. Some of the later crusades, not quite as good as the original ones. But from the beginning, these guys, they, they were saints. Think about this. Campus Crusades for Christ. Now they're crew. Think about that. How recently... Right? We're not talking about hundreds of years ago. How recently the Crusades were viewed, not as perfect, but generally as, as something positive. Something that our ancestors, our fathers, they fought for God's truth and God's people to protect them. That was viewed mostly positively for a very long time until very recently. What's one of the evidences that I would cite for that claim? The fact that campus Crusades for Christ. Do you think any parachurch college ministry today would name themselves something that has crusades in the name in 2024? No way. In fact, Campus Crusades for, for Christ took crusades out of the name. But th that all happened within just a matter of a few years. That's how quickly the revisionist history works. That's how quickly the, the indoctrination works. That's how quickly a generation can be taught to abandon their heritage. Why are these names listed? Because it's history, not fiction. Why are these names listed? Because they deserve to be honored and not forgotten. But lastly, why are these names listed? Because these are my fathers. I belong to them. And knowing my fathers, it tells me my future. Knowing my fathers tells me my allegiance. It tells me what team I'm on. If you're a Christian, your fathers are the crusaders, they are the reformers, they are the ancients, all the way back to Paul and the apostles and ultimately Jesus Christ, who is your older brother, but also in Isaiah is called eternal father. Because through Christ himself, many sons are born. Your lineage goes all the way back there. Oh, you're not Jewish? Yes, you are. Abraham is your father. We can go back even further. Noah is your father. Adam is your father. This is your team. Don't forget it. And don't let anyone talk you into thinking that your team is bad. Your team's not perfect because it is a human team. And humans, just like you, just like me, are sinners. But it's God's team. And God's grace covers a multitude of sin. I believe that as the church moves forward, now living in the West in hostile world, negative world, we're not in neutral world, we're not in positive world. As we move forward, two things will be pivotal for our survival. You, you will see many churches continue to close their doors. And I'm not just saying close their doors because of, of you know, a, a virus that was, you know, in a, in a, a wet market. No, it was manufactured in a lab. We all know that. We always knew that. They're finally admitting it. You're allowed to say it now without being canceled. But I'm not just saying closing your doors because of, of COVID. I'm saying, no, many, many churches will close down because they, they'll just fade out. They'll just fizzle out. And it's because they're lacking in negative world, it takes fortitude to survive. They're lacking at least two things. Positive view of their fathers, positive view of the future. Positive view of your fathers, positive view of your future. I think one of the things that's becoming vital right now for the church, for Christians, is to be able to look back to Christian heritage and say, that's good. Imperfect, but on the whole, good. Christendom was good. It was not a plague on the world. Islam, plague. Paganism, plague. Secularism and atheism and humanitarianism, plague. Christendom, good. Perfect, no. Flaws, yes. But overall, good. So looking back to your father's Christendom, good. Looking forward to the future, not just positive view of the past, but a positive view of the future and saying, not only will Jesus win by returning next Thursday, but Jesus will win throughout real time in real human history by restoring his church to the formidable force that it used to be. That Jesus will actually win his body, his hands and feet in human history, the church on earth. That, that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the offensive weapon of the church, of the increase of his government and his kingdom in real history. There shall be no end. I think that Christians today, 
who were able to look at the past without the indoctrination of revisionist history that says American founding, bad. Crusades, bad. England, bad. King Alfred, bad. The Knights, bad. All, if you can look back and say, flawed, human, but good. Overall good. And then look forward and say, hope. There's hope. And it's not that we are fatalistically destined by God to get worse and worse progressively until Jesus returns. And it's going to be relatively soon, so it really doesn't matter what we do. That is not going to work. I, mark my words, I, I don't try to make a whole lot of predictions. This is not a prophecy. I don't have a crystal ball, but I will make this prediction. This one uh, is a pretty safe bet. People who look to the last 2,000 years of church history and say, eh, they're oppressive and it was mostly bad and look forward and say, Jesus is coming back next Thursday and things will get worse until he does, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. NGMI, right? That, that church, NGMI. You're not going to make it. You, you could make it in positive world 30 years ago. You could make it in a neutral world. Still have your big conferences and go on a Ligonier cruise. With the topic of the cruise being suffering and persecution. Did you know that happened? It's been a while. It was 2015. It might have been 13. But the topic was uh, suffering and persecution on a cruise. With R.C. Sproul. God bless him. I love him. Right? That's how you know that you're not suffering and being persecuted. Right? That's how you know you are not in negative world. Not yet. That doesn't happen anymore. Not like that. Not like that. People are waking up and realizing, oh, goodness, snap. All the things that we were LARPing as, we're LARPing as sojourners and LARPing as aliens and next, because we actually weren't. We actually had power, had opportunity, and we threw it away. But now we actually are suffering. Now we actually are exiles. Now we actually are the minority. Now we actually are being oppressed by a dominant group that hates our history, hates our people, and does not love God. And I think in this moment, this historical moment, sons of Issachar knowing the time, the thing that's going to get you through, so well, the thing that's going to get you through, uh, pastor, is the gospel. Stop Jesus juking. Stop it. Cut that pietism right out. Yes, the gospel will preserve you. It's the tip of the spear. It is the greatest offensive weapon we have that God, through the preaching of sinful men, might actually be pleased by the power of His Spirit to convert other men's hearts and cause them to become a new creation. Nevertheless, but don't be so naive to think that it's not also more. It is the gospel, never less than the gospel. But it helps to know history and it helps to have hope to believe that Christ could restore Christendom once more. That the things that have happened in the past are not bad, but were good, and that those good things are not merely behind us, but also, if God would be so kind, it is possible, theologically possible, that they could also be in front of us. That they could be in front of us. And that we may be here for a while, not just till next Thursday, so it is imperative that we get to work. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Let us not be like the priest and his household that made an alliance with a family for the sake of nobility and reputation and ease, giving up our heritage, our name. But let us rather be like the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who were willing to leave behind their own heritage their own ancestry, their, their pagan culture and pagan religion, their own fathers say, I belong to Yahweh. I belong to Christ. Let us be like Ruth to say, your people will be my people, your God, my God, and not just in fair weather, but even when the world despises religion, when the world is hostile to the Christian faith. And at a practical level, not just the spiritual Christian application. But at a practical level, Lord, I pray that, that each of us, Lord, that find ourselves here in these United States, at this time, in this place, that we would trust that you are sovereign over all of it. It's not an accident. And I pray that we would actually have a love and an affection for this country, 
our founding, our fathers, and a hope and a diligence to work towards our future. America is unique. It is a collection of multiple different origin points. Even within Europe, it's not all the same England and Ireland and Scotland. People from Canada, people from Mexico, people from here, people from there. But Lord, I pray that, that a diversity of color and ethnicity would not be a diversity of religion. Diversity of religion is not our strength. God, I, I unashamedly and unapologetically pray for a monolithic religion and devotion in our nation to no God, no king, but Christ. And that everyone who is here in this moment would say, your God is my God and your people are my people. I may have a homeland somewhere else and I will always maintain within myself a certain devotion and love, affection for that country, those people. But God brought me in his sovereignty here. And so your country, your founding, your traditions, your fathers, and most importantly, your God, the Christian faith. This is my jersey. This is the team that I am on. And I'm going to view the history positively and view the future hopefully. All for the glory of God and the good of his people. We pray this for Christ's sake, in his name, 